Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Corners podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. We're almost, we're almost light at the end of the tunnel with the trade deadline mark we've almost made it we are three days four hours 44 minutes and 27 seconds away from this very moment in case you were we're not keeping track i have i have a countdown timer on my phone um and in the first domino falling uh not just for the pacers but it you know the first big uh trade that has happened during quote-unquote trade season was karis lavert getting traded by the pacers last night uh, about an hour and 10 minutes before the game um, Karis was sent to the Pacers for, I'm looking right now, this is way harder to read than I thought it was going to be, um, for Ricky Rubio's expiring contract, uh, because he is out for injury. I mean, out with injury for the rest of the season. Uh, they get the Cavaliers first Cavaliers second via Miami, um, a lottery protected, uh, the, the, I mean, the first this year is lottery protected. Jeez. That was took, took way too long to say, and then two second round picks. Um, so what, I guess the first thing I will ask you straight up is what was your reaction when this happened? How did you feel? Where are you at now with it? Yeah, it's interesting because Tom, our site manager at Indy Cornrows, wrote an article of, like with links and talking about the connections between Karis and the Cavs that had been out there for a while and wondering if if he would make the return flight back after the game. So I was kind of along those same lines. I mean, there's been so much smoke from reporters in Cleveland of what the interest was and in, in Levert from the Cavs side that I figured something would probably get done there. I know Joe Varden from The Athletic had talked about this potentially being like yeah. an audition for Karis yesterday afternoon. So in some ways, it was kind of nice to be spared from the audition phase and just um, get something out of the way early for the Pacers. I think we'll get into the timing a little bit more too, but um, you're more plugged in with the Cleveland area, the Ohio native that you are. Were you all at surprise that this was picks and that, you know, a Coro or maybe another young player wasn't included? Um, I mean, I personally just for, for Cleveland and where they're at with the year that they've had. Um, I mean, this team, just in terms of what they're doing, it feels uh it's semi akin to like the, the 17, 18 Pacers, you know, a team that wasn't necessarily supposed to be that good has really hit. A lot of guys have had career years, um, but they're a younger group. So I think to me, um, I was glad to see that they did not trade away Isaac Okoro because he's really, even though he still has some things to iron out offensively, like he's really been a big part of this group. Uh, it was hard to really see them moving on from any of the young guys already. Um, and a lot of signs are starting to indicate that Colin Sexton might resign there. Um, I guess my biggest thing, and I, I feel like maybe I am partially biased because of how close you and I both we follow, both follow the Pacers. But um, I thought if this was the, like if the Cavs wanted to make a move, which I was not against, I thought it, it does make sense. Okay. The East has been kind of wide open this year. I don't know if I see them as a, as a title team, but why not see what you can do. Um I was a little bit uh, unsure what to make of this fit um, in terms of Karras going to Cleveland. I, I do think it's uh, it's not as picturesque as maybe it seems on paper, um, but ultimately, like, I, I don't think it's the 
like the worst gamble. I, I do think that some things will be a little bit better for Karras. Like we've seen even with, with IJAX recently, I think Karras kind of uh, really benefits having a lob partner, uh, which was just not, I mean, that wasn't the case for him most of his time in Indiana until IJAX started playing. And that's, I mean, a big part of, of their offense is having Evan Mobley and Jared Allen capable of operating out of the dunker spot and just, you know, a lot of quick decision-making ball movement. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see how the fit plays out. I was, uh, I, I think my other thing, just kind of from a more neutral standpoint, I was just surprised that um, the Pacers actually got close to two first for Karras. Like I was, I mean, based on national reporting and just my own valuation, I was like very surprised that they ended up getting that much back for him. Yeah, from the Cleveland side, I mean, Levert obviously already has established chemistry with Jared Allen. I mean, mm-hmm. that showed up big time in the bubble whenever he was playing. And, you know, his favorite thing to do as a passer is to hold on to the ball as long – is either to throw a lob or to hold passes, on to the ball yes. as, as long as possible and then dish it off at the rim, which suits Jared Allen's game really well. I mean, in some ways, he probably is a little bit of an amalgamation between – I mean, offers you a little bit of what Rubio and Sexton can do. He's like, mm. you know, more of like a 1.75, but, you know, getting scoring, getting somebody that can get two feet in the paint. I will be interested to see from him if some of his mentality changes once he's on a winning team, which really yeah. hasn't been the case for him at any point in his career and how maybe that affects his defense and, and whatnot. I mean, from their perspective, I think the other people that they were linked to are mainly was linked to is Eric Gordon and Levert's you know, clearly younger, they might be able to re-sign him this summer, depending upon what they choose to do with Colin Sexton. But yeah, from the Pacers perspective, I mean, they did. I mean, that's what it kept saying was their baseline was two first round picks. And maybe in part they were, you know, I don't want to use the word leak, but maybe that was getting put out there because they already knew this deal was available to them. I mean, the stuff with Cleveland has been out there for so long. Maybe they knew like, Hey, they're going to offer us a first and Houston second is virtually a first, but you know, maybe some other team will come in at the last minute and go ahead and, and up that to actually two first. But, you know, I think they made out pretty well. It all depends on what this draft shakes out to be. And we don't know who all stays in and out. It sounds like from the draft intelligentsia that they're thinking it could maybe be weaker through the middle, which is where, you know, these picks will likely come from in the twenties and the thirties. But I mean, the Pacers sent out their second from Miami. So in essence, in the second round, they almost moved up 20 spots. I mean, cause yeah. that will probably be in the fifties. Houston's pick will be in the high thirties. So that alone, then they get the, the second way down the road from Utah in 2027 as well. But I mean, we also know from this front office that they did a pretty good job cobbling together spare parts to move up for Isaiah Jackson last year with those seconds that they got in exchange for Aaron Holiday and that they had. So, you know, there's still more possibilities available there. Also with Ricky Rubio, like I don't know what their intentions are with his expiring contract moving forward. So I think all in all that they have to be pretty happy with that return. And I, I also want to point out that, like, haven't we heard from the last two weeks that Herb Simon wasn't gonna green light deals for picks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have we have, we have been hearing that. It would seem so. It almost seems like there wasn't reason to get mad online until deals had actually been made. Yeah. Um. Well, <laughs> yes, I I can't disagree with you on that, Caitlin. Um. One thing I wanted to bring up too, and I I don't love like just making this about valuation and whatnot, but I do think that's part of what this podcast has to be up be about today. Last year, if we go back and look at this, do you think that if the if the Pacers just traded Victor Oladipo straight up for picks, do you think that they get a pretty solid first round pick, a high level second, and then a second down the road? 
I mean, if they had traded him immediately after the bubble and not let him come back and recoup value, I don't think so. Um, it's possible that they might have done that, and maybe that does go back to Herb Simon. I mean, they were in a different place last year. Mm-hmm. And that's what's kind of interesting because I've, I've seen some discussion about, like, you know, this roster was put together poorly. And it's like, you know, you look back, and obviously the first 10 games of any season are noisy, but the way they looked with Victor and Turner and Sabonis and TJ Warren and, and even uh, and Brogdon there at the beginning of the season under Bjorkren, they looked somewhat promising. Victor was playing well. So, um, it's, it's possible, but I mean, if it, I'm, I'm trying to remember, did they get a second back in addition with Karis last year or was it just Karis? I think it was just Karis. Okay. I was going to say, well, then that's even more of a return, but I mean, I think it's perfectly fine to have turned Karis into this. I mean, there's yeah. no way to, to potentially know. And, yeah. the, and the one thing too, the timing of it, were you surprised that this came down yesterday before the game and before the trade deadline? Uh that they didn't wait to push it until Thursday. I think yes and no. Um, I think if Joe, a if Joe Varden hadn't had his thing come out about how uh, Karis was quote unquote auditioning for the Cavs, which that was um, that was certainly a tweet. Um, I uh, I mean, if if that hadn't come out, I, I think I would have been a little bit like more, um, a little bit less surprised. But that came out, I was like, oh okay, all right, he's he's kind of gone. Like we knew he was going to get, we knew it was very likely he was going to get traded. I saw that. So I was like, okay, well, he's gone. Um, I did just in terms of timing though, it was, it was kind of weird. Like, especially like 70 minutes before the game tips. Um, I, I mean, that, that, that was weird too. I mean, we saw James Boyd, uh, any star reporter tweeted out last night that he was walking in the hallway and saw, um, you know, Karis like was going around to people and he came up to Chris Stark. He was like, Hey, I love you, man. And then Chris is like, like, what are you talking about? Like, what's up? And I mean, tells Karis, I mean, tells Chris right there. He's like, yeah, I just got traded to Cleveland. And like, I mean, it's uh, yeah, I, I think that in that aspect, surprising uh, a little bit odd in some ways, but I'm kind of glad that this can get, didn't get dragged out to Thursday because I do think in some ways that that provides more clarity um, like Tony East over at, Forbes and Lockdown Pacers wrote a really good column on the Pacers need to find clarity, which, you know, we've talked about, he's talked about the entire season. Um, I think doing this move now and getting it done before Thursday just opens up a little bit more flexibility or at least a more clear direction um, for what, I mean, is likely to be subsequent moves. I mean, in Adrian Wojnarowski's write-up after he, he tweeted out the report, uh, he said, and this is direct quote, the Pacers are beginning what is expected to be a roster makeover with big men, Demonis Sabonis and Miles Turner prominent in trade talks, um, which I thought was important to note because, you know, we've seen more and more stuff about like, not that it's un- impossible for Domas to get traded, but that it seemed a little bit less likely. And that, I mean, that makes it clear that he's still on the table clearly. Um, so yeah, with, with, you know, just providing some more wiggle room prior to Thursday, I think uh, made sense. Um, where are you at on it? Yeah, I mean, Carlisle, I had this quote. This is from Scott Agnes has this mm-hmm. quote from here. We're putting together a path forward that is going to be a little bit different. Um, that leads me to believe that they're expecting that other other moves either will or are likely to happen. And in that regard, I think it makes a lot of sense to get this deal done today. I mean, my guess is they had, had you know, canvassed the rest of the market and thought that Cleveland's deal was going to be the the best possible, but it also sets a baseline on picks. 
Like, I mean, now if they're, if they're looking to move miles or whoever it is, they can go and say, Hey, we just got effectively, you know, a first and 80% of a first with what Houston second is for Karis Levert. So we're going to need at least that or more for, you know, who, whichever big they end up moving. So I think it makes sense to set their own baseline there. And then also what you just said that like getting this stuff now, if they do potentially want to flip some of what they got um, as part of another subsequent deal, then, then that also opens up opportunities for them moving forward as well as like, you know, just furthermore, just from the team perspective, which we haven't touched on yet, um, opening opportunities for Duarte and Dwayne, which we already saw last night, I think was probably part of it. But I think, I mean, you and I were probably fairly harsh on Karis in the last podcast, probably the last two podcasts really. And that was before he had his 42 point game against the bulls, which in reality and form and function was pretty much the same as his other games lately. It was just that he was he like, hit shots. Yeah. he was just on a massive heater and couldn't be stopped. And in that regard, like I understand, keep giving it to him if he's going to, if he's going to be that hot. But I think that we could pretty much all see that it wasn't exactly working out for him in the way that Carlisle wants to play. Um, and not just even on the court, but like, I felt like all season long, you could sense little small things in the pressers. Like I vividly remember after that, lost to the Pistons when they only scored like 10 points over the last 10 minutes or whatever it was that Rick Carlisle made his comments about the defense and how we need to be able to push off of defensive rebounds, which, I mean, as you remember, they really weren't doing in that game. And you could kind of hear him telling them to hold the ball and have, there was some pace control still at that point in the season. But afterwards, like, I believe that was relayed to Karras in a question and Karras was like, well, we can talk about defense all we want, but we only scored 10 points. Like we didn't even crack 90 in the last two games. And it was like a blatant contradiction. And I don't necessarily disagree with what Karras's position was, but there was other times where after games, they would both give comments and they would, it seemed like they were on exact opposite pages or Karras might make a comment like, well, we didn't make, I didn't think we made adjustments after halftime which seemed kind of like a subtle shot. Yeah, Yeah, it felt pointed at times. So I can't say that I'm completely shocked that he was the first player traded on the roster. Um, So I don't know where you are on that particular point. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was Scott who had um, written earlier this month or last month, along with other people. I mean, I think it was in the the athletic article that came out originally. among others, that Karras was the most likely to be moved just in terms of fit and how things were going with him uh, in terms of gelling. And I do want to say, too, um, you know, I, I we definitely have been critical of Karras, but I just hope that people realize that's strictly for on court. You know, we yeah. don't know him off the court. He seems like a really good guy. Um, but just in terms of on court, like there was plenty to be critical of. And I, uh, yeah, I, I think we try and keep it mostly to that. And Hopefully people see that. If you don't, sorry, uh, be sure to hit us up and let us know what you think. But <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, I think that's that's where I'm at on it. I'm uh, I'm I'm a little bit disappointed that things didn't work out. Um, but, you know, I mean, just because like we've talked about, like he's just one of the most frustrating players to watch in some ways. Like I think he's maybe the most for me, the most frustrating pacer to watch since Tyreek Evans. Like, you know, the talent is there. You know, he's capable of putting it together. It's just finding his rhythm, rhythm, finding his consistency, finding it in the flow of the offense. And it just never really gelled. And um, like, like we talked about with Chicago, like, I mean, we don't need him to have a 40 point game every night, but it's like, okay, 
Like, even in that game, it felt like he got to the rim more than ever. Part of that is Chicago's defense, too. Like, you know, in yeah. terms of how they're doing a lot more high trapping. But, like, it's just that was – it's like, ah, you just see it. And you're like, ah, it's it's there. Like, you just – you get just enough where you're like, if you did that every time, you're like a top 30, 40 player in the NBA. But then, you know, then it's just a lot of 10 and 12-foot pull-ups. And it just isn't – ah, yeah. Well, and the thing that's – like, I know the funny thing is, is we both said before this game, oh, we'll probably not touch on the Bulls game that much, but let's touch <laughs> yeah. on the Bulls game. Yeah. Because that was one thing that frustrated me a bit while we were watching that. Because, like, everybody knew, I think, that after halftime that Billy Donovan was going to have the Bulls come out and blitz the heck out of Karras, which they yeah. did. And that did cause some negative dribbles. But somehow, some way, Karras managed to find Terry Taylor on the short roll I don't know, probably three or four Terry times. Terry Taylor, short roll savant. He was, and Terry he was really Taylor good. suddenly made passes out of it. And it was like, hey, look how easy this is that when two people are on the ball and you pass the ball to the middle of the floor and there's somebody who can make a pass to shooters out of it, that isn't overly complicated offense. And yet for the first, I don't know how many games of the year while the Pacers were getting blitzed, that seemed as though it was an impossibility. Middle and of I the wanna, floor was lava, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It, and I want to give, I always wanted to give the benefit of the doubt to both Brogdon and Karras of like, you know, Brogdon plays point guard, but, you know, doesn't always handle extensive pressure as well and finding passing angles. But, but Karras has always had that in his bag. Like last year when the Heat blitzed him and games in Miami, he managed to pass out of it. And then at the beginning of the season, it was like, Either he didn't want to or he just couldn't do it anymore. And then he comes out there in that game with with Terry Taylor starting at center for only the second game and manages to do it. So um, I don't know exactly what was going on with that. And I do agree with you. Like there, you had to take some of that with a grain of salt because once again, the Pacers had another rest advantage for the third time in three games. I don't think the Bulls even got into Indy until 3.30 in the morning. And let's just say you can tell a pretty big difference in Vucevic's defense when Caruso and Lonzo aren't available to be guarding on the perimeter. And also it's almost like point of attack defenders can make a pretty big difference, but who would have thought thought of that? If anybody ever needs some backup on that, Ben Taylor uh, did a really great, no, it was was, uh, my friend, Mike De La Rosa, who works for thinking basketball, had a really great video come out on that channel about Alex Caruso and Lonzo Ball's impact as point of attack defenders and rim protection. So I, I recommend watching that. Um, did you enjoy the DeMar DeRozan experience? I love watching him play so much. He's having just an incredible year, and I, I love watching him play. I mean, the Bulls are a pretty fun watch. I don't yeah. get to watch them that often because for some reason, League Pass thinks I live in Chicago, which I live nowhere near to Chicago, so they black out all those games for me. I was a little bit confused early on by why the Pacers defensively, like, you know, they they had no one to be guarding Vucevic, clearly, but early in the game, it seemed like they were deliberately like sending people under, especially on the high picks when DeRozan was out from three so that Terry Taylor could at least stay home. And then they could double from there. And like five minutes into the game is like, Oh, we're done with that look. And we're going to start switching all of those picks. And then it would end up being like Chris Duarte or whoever guarding Vucevic. And then they were somewhat delayed uh, doubling from the passer. And like, obviously we know what DeMar DeRozan's capable of in the mid range, but I felt like from a strategic standpoint that they probably would have been better off just continuing on with the unders because Vucevic just absolutely eviscerated them, which yeah. again, I'm, you can't be too harsh because they don't have, they had no big bodies to deal with that. But it's like, if that's what you were going to do, then that those doubles had to be way quicker because 
I mean, when they were switching, they were switching under him, which I almost felt again, like, and this is going to sound contradictory to our prior podcast. When I talk about switching, it almost would have been better to stay on his high side and force some of their bulls guard to be throwing passes up over the top and see if they could throw a lob. Cause it's not like he's a massive lob threat anyways. So, um, I thought a little bit of that was puzzling, but that's probably getting too far into the weeds for a roster that was lacking and only having Levert as the available starter. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. Um, well, do you want to let's talk about Terry Taylor a little bit? You mentioned, I mean, we talked about the short roll a little bit, which was really awesome to see. I think he showcased that a little bit last night too. Um, like he had a couple of nice passes, not again, less on the short roll, but um, I continue to just really enjoy his game. I thought I, I mean, since since we've talked about how big Rick Carlisle is on single game plus minus, Terry Taylor second on the team in uh, in single game plus minus against the Bulls. So more playing time. Who's to say? Yeah, the Terry Taylor experience last night was welcomed because I don't I don't know how you envision him. I don't see him as a center long term oh, in the NBA. All, yeah. But I was there was a point in the first half where I was like, let's just just play Terry Taylor at the five. Like That's let's how I felt, let's yes. just, you know, the, the go-go experience needs a break for the time being. And then they did. Terry came in at solo five for a bit. And once again, is starting to show his his status as the team's second best screener because mm-hmm. in the Bulls game he once again had a Gortat screen to help Levert get into the lane and score and in that particular game last night um I forget who was defending on ball but they went under against Dwayne Washington he re-screened and then Dwayne Washington at point guard had a smitty and scored over Jarrett Allen at the rim that was incredible that really caught my eye can we talk? Okay. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's keep talking about Terry. Cause I, we have to talk about Dwayne too. Um, we got some good stuff from the young guys in these games. I will say other, other than Goga, I'm sorry, Goga, but um, I mean, I, I, how do you feel about him as a shooter? Like at least his willingness to shoot from Terry. I mean, how many did he attempt last night? He attempted I th- yeah, one. He in did, his I don't think time. he attempted any last night. Um, he attempted two in the Bulls game. Yeah, two in the Bulls game. Yeah, I mean, but he I haven't felt had... like he's actively checking out of anything. No, no. I mean, he's not playing out on the perimeter that much. It's not like he's like last night at the end of the game, he came in and for like roughly a minute and played at the four next to Sabonis and then finished the game at the four with Goga. But mm-hmm. I mean, so much of the time he's being involved as the screener for the ball handlers or, you know, sometimes it's a trailer with DHOs. I mean, I don't think it's like he's had that many opportunities to have spotted yeah. up, but I agree with you. I don't think he's passing out of him. Well, I his thought it was stroke cool. looks, His stroke looks pretty decent. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it was cool too. Cause like, like you mentioned, he had a, it was in the bulls game where he was not guarded out above the break, got the ball swung to him, but he immediately ran into a, a DHO for Justin. And I think, I think Justin hit it. He might've missed. I can't remember, but regardless, like, that's the kind of stuff I want to see. Like, if you're not freezing there with the ball, if you're not contemplating, you're just making something happen. I was like, this is perfect. Like, that's as good. That's as good to me as him actually taking the shot. So, um, that was good stuff to see. Continue to enjoy it. Uh, really quick, what did you think of Reggie Perry? Uh, I, I don't expect him to exactly linger on the roster for very long, but did you have any thoughts about him playing? Um, I did. Mostly because I am part, I'm almost to the point where I want the Pacers to fire the one three one zone into the sun. <laughs> Asking he, him to to run baseline like that was kind of wild. And it wasn't even just that, but like there's no way in the world that somebody should be able to come off a pick because Karis was playing at the top. 
They were just screening the top, and DeMar DeRozan was making one pass to the opposite corner, like one pass to break a 1-3-1 zone. That was Mm -hmm. the degree of pressure at the top of it, and that happened two times in a row. So point being is I did – that was all when when Reggie was in. So after they got a stop, they usually – you know, raise a fist and they go into zone when they're going to be in zone. And I noticed that he looked over the bench and raised a two, which meant they were going to play man to man and he was in a drop. So I did think it was pretty interesting that after only being with the team for like a day that he was calling out defensive coverages and looking for that. But um, I can't say I had a lot of thoughts about Reggie Perry at the five. I mean, he only came in and played briefly and I can't imagine that he had much time to go over anything with anybody and you know Sabonis is out of health and safety protocols last night so um, he was inactive and unless somebody else abruptly enters I can't imagine that he'll probably be with the team much longer yeah um, that makes two of us I will say I was pretty in relative for for a guy who was a second round pick I was relatively interested with him um, in Brooklyn last year I thought he had some fun flashes I think with where I'm at, I, I felt – I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit too harsh. I felt like Reggie looked like a better player than Goga did last night. Part of that is tougher assignment in some ways for Goga. But, um, like, that's kind of just showing a little bit of where Goga is when when a guy who's coming in signing a 10-day looks a little bit better. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being too harsh. Did you feel similarly? No, let's talk about Goga in that time because, you know, he's coming off. I'm not even sure now how many games he's missed and been out, but obviously he had the foot soreness. I think he had been practicing at least before he just abruptly returned to action. But, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's kind of a good comparison because it's not like Reggie Perry had a lot of time to, you know, ramp up before he was thrown out there into action. So Goga plays last night and – a lot of the things that we just keep pointing out just keep happening. And I don't think that was solely like an issue of fatigue. Um, He's doing the same thing where, you know, Rondo comes off a pick and, you know, we know what Rondo's finishing is at this point in his career. And he backs off and goes back to Evan Mobley. Like once that's just his biggest struggle. He too often doesn't put any impact on the ball and releases too early to go back to his man and gave up a wide open layup to Rondo. Um, He was struggling on the defensive glass quite a bit. I mean, and I'm not saying that that necessarily shouldn't happen with Jared Allen. Obviously Jared Allen's a very good offensive rebounder, but that was showing up. And then I don't know how many more times. Cause I mean, Chris even told him on the one, he, I think he got fouled in the second half, but in the first half when Tori had the drive and dish to him in the dunker and he had all kinds of time, all he needed to do is go straight up. And, and when he's under the basket, he's, he wants to put the ball down to his knees and gather and then go up. And Chris even told him in the second half, like, just go straight up. And then he ended up missing what should have been a pretty easy layup. Um, the screen setting is still an issue for him a lot of the time. I think he, do, I still think he does better with dribble handoffs because he kind of has to guarantee to make the contact. But when it's just the regular screening, it's just not coming together. Like I just feel like a lot of the stuff that we pointed out for three years is still going on, and that it's not so much anymore that it's like, oh, you know give him a chance and he hasn't played regular minutes. It's like, I I expect to see at least some correction on some of these things. I mean, yeah, like you mentioned, it felt like he had every shot he took at the rim was altered last night because he had to put the ball down first. And that just, when you're six eleven, like you, you just got to go up with it, man. And yeah. um, Well, I even had the one in the paint where I I think it was Chris uh, drew two to the ball 
and gave it to Duarte right in front of the rim that he could have done an easy hook shot. And he Mm -hmm. ended up traveling and then passed it. And it was a turnover. And Evan Mobley was even like, that's a travel. Like it was like, he was just stuck in quicksand and didn't know what to do. I don't know. Yeah. It was very rough. Um, And the defense was uh, defense was very rough as well. Yeah. I mean, I want to give him somewhat of the benefit of the doubt, like I said, because of the foot soreness and, and, and to be completely fair, like Sabonis had a very rough game, Yeah, but I will say that for him, I don't really know why he was playing in that game. Like I know that it was reported that he had been working out at his home gym during the quarantine time, but I don't think he had really been back with the team. And after about any of it, he played very short stints in part because he was in foul trouble, but I think they were also monitoring like his conditioning. And anytime he was out there after he had made about two trips down the floor, he just looked absolutely gassed. Like he didn't look like he was ready to be back playing again. I felt like, he should have at least taken that game off and, and ramped back up. And especially with the trade deadline later this week, like if it's accurate that they're actually assessing deals for him, I don't really know what the benefit to having him out there was other than that's just Sabonis being Sabonis and wanting to compete, I guess. But um, it but, was also, I mean, it was a yeah, rough game exactly. for him like, too. If he's just trying to force himself to be out there, like you have to be able to be like, well, you need to rest. And I, I don't, I don't know. It's, we've talked about it a bunch, but it's a very finicky line and I don't, uh, yeah. I agree. He didn't really have a lot of lift yesterday either. It was just kind of like, I mean, part of it too is difficult because yeah, I mean, they, the length that Cleveland imposes on the inside is just kind of ridiculous, but also. Sure. But the last time they were in Cleveland, he went off for like, what he had like a 20 point triple double or whatever it was like, he just didn't look ready to be playing that game. Yeah. Uh, Well, what do you want to, what do you want to dive into next? Let's talk about point Dwayne. Yeah. Point Dwayne. So in Dwayne Washington's last eight games, 46% from the field, 40.4% from three on six and a half a game. He's playing really well. I, I've really enjoyed the Dwayne experience, but Point Dwayne was a different experience. Where were you at with Point Dwayne? I'm surprised that it existed a little bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, clearly they don't have Karis. He's not there. Brogdon isn't there. TJ McConnell's on the bench. So that's already putting them down by playmakers. And Sabonis was in foul trouble. And what we just said was accurate. He didn't look like himself as a playmaker. So that wasn't really going to be beneficial to them either. Um, So now you have Kiefer and Lance. And I think some of it probably went to like so much of the time if Kiefer's running Spain, it's like he doesn't really have. I don't even want to call it burst, but to get into the paint, he'll just like, if, if they draw an extra defender, he's automatically going to throw that to the, to the corner. And he did, he did have a couple nice passes to Sabonis in the third quarter, but um, I know this was supposed to be about point Dwayne, but I think that Kiefer probably should have his inbound passing responsibilities revoked. Did you notice that they ran triangle twice in the second half when he was the inbounder? And Torrey Craig, like they essentially it's a screen, the screener. So like there's a back screen in the lane and then that guy goes around and gets, it gets the ball off another screen in the corner. And Torrey came off the initial back screen right under the rim and they, he didn't give it to him. And uh, early in the fourth quarter, the exact same thing happened with O'Shea where he was wide open under the rim. He didn't give it to him until they had to like regroup. And then O'Shea ended up having like an awful turnover, but um, that's, that's a side that, Lance then is your backup one and he did not have a great game on either end of the floor and Cleveland's three, two seemed to really be bothering the Pacers. I was surprised they didn't just sit in that more because especially at the start of the fourth quarter and the end of the third, it was, it was bothering them quite a bit. So my guess is 
that Rick Carlisle was probably thinking like, okay, we got to pivot somewhere. Let's just try Dwayne doing this because he's a better shooter than Lance and Kiefer has struggled a little bit. So we don't really have anywhere else to go. We'll try this. And he did have a couple nice moments. I felt like they tweaked like the one, four flat so that it was, you know, Justin and Terry kind of a bit higher. And it was a chase action where Justin was like ghost screening the ball. And then Terry would follow with a, a screen to allow him to get downhill and, one of those was where he had the Smitty against Jared Allen. Then another time he rejected it and got to the left side with his little, you know, wrong footed layup that he loves to use where he's shifty and he got another score over Jared Allen. But then by the third time, Jared Allen was like, you know, I'm waiting for you. And he kind of blocked him into oblivion. I didn't think there was a ton of playmaking from him in those situations necessarily. I think he did have an assist to Terry Taylor, like right in front of the room where Terry had to kind of regroup. And then a couple of his passes to Sabonis, whenever things were really getting out of hand, were not on target. And then Sabonis ended up like crashing into guys a couple times. So I don't think it's something that I would really want to see a lot of. I think it was 12 total minutes and the team as a whole was minus eight and scored 95.8 points per 100 during just those 12, which is obviously a very teeny tiny sample size, but is not good. Like, I I don't think it's something that they probably want to look at long-term, but it does show that like for some of the issues that Karis had this year, it's going to be a bumpy ride in the playmaking department until and and less than until Malcolm Brogdon and TJ McConnell can play. Like, I think that Lance can play better than what he did last night and not every team's going to have Evan Mobley that they can put up top in a three, two zone. But um, there's just not, I mean, in general, even with Karis, there's not a lot of playmaking on this roster and now it's just even depleted more. Yeah. Yes, it definitely. uh, We're going to see a lot of what 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 the guys on the team can and cannot do over the next uh, next month or so. But that's actually something I want to bring up because, I mean, somebody was messaging me this yesterday and I think that we had kind of lightly touched this on a prior podcast that like, where's the line there of like opening playing time for guys, but also, you know, like a player like Sabonis for the rest of the season. I mean, aside from what yesterday's debacle was you know, having him out there to potentially have playmaking, be a screener and help the development of some of those people. Cause at what point do you not have enough out there that it's actually like, you're not going to get the same development because they're not going to be able to get the same quality of reps. Yeah. That's kind of what I've been wondering a little bit because like, who is, who is running things primarily on ball? Like, I mean, especially if Malcolm is going to be out for, for the time yeah. being right now. Okay. Are we, is Chris Duarte or, or Dwayne Washington Jr. going to run a lot of stuff on ball? Because I, I don't think that that's necessarily very good for their development or what you want from them. Um, I mean, it might be okay for Chris individually to get those reps and to work on it, yeah. but like for the rest of the team and developing and what they're doing and running the offense, I can't necessarily say that. I did look at the numbers for Chris. He's played 638 minutes this year with Karis Lever, and in that time his usage rate has been – 19% in the minutes, 719 without Karras's usage rate has been 23. So it does bump up. And I think his effective field goal percentage is about, I mean, it's a little bit higher with Karras, but it's, it's over 50% in both cases. So um, I think he probably will get some more opportunities, which, I mean, I think over this last little stretch where Karras was really racking up a high volume of shots, won't be a bad thing to see him do a little bit more on ball. But I just feels like it's going to be have to be a lot more from various people and then not even just a lot more from them, but you're not going to have 
you know, again, depending upon what they do as Sabonis, the same fulcrum to help guys get into things. And that's kind of where I still continue to lean on the fact that, and again, I'm not the Pacers, but I wouldn't trade Sabonis in the next five days unless they are just absolutely blown away because I think he's going to help you for the rest of the season, developing some of the young guys. You can look at it at the draft when I think that there's probably going to be more teams come to the table. I think it's easier to, you know, envision how your team would fit with him with a summer to plan for it than what most teams are probably going to see right now. And you're going to have a better idea of where those draft picks are and what you're actually getting than what will be the case right now from certain teams. And I just think that it's, it's beneficial to see what other options you could have with him long-term, but um, that's just what I see in part because of what we were seeing in those minutes. I mean, the one lineup was Duarte, Dwayne, Torrey, O'Shea, and Terry Taylor. And it just felt like they were really struggling to get into stuff. Yeah. No, exactly. There's like very minimal um, on-ball burst or creation right now. And I'm just, uh, I agree with you. I'm not really, uh, not really sure what that means moving forward. It's going to, it's going to be very bumpy um, undoubtedly, but the defense should theoretically be a little bit better. Um, Not to totally rag on Karras, but I do think uh, it is fair to point out that the defense should look a little bit better without him. Let's talk about the defense from last night a little bit. Yeah. Um, because I don't completely agree with Rick's opinion about the fourth quarter. Um, <laughs> yeah, that makes too But much. I will say that for the first three quarters, and I would have been like old takes exposed because um, in the third quarter, I was thinking to myself, like, this is the best the defense has looked since they played against the Lakers. And some of that was because the Cavs weren't hitting shots early. But I thought it was pretty effective that they were having Dwayne Washington Jr. extend the pressure full court, TJ McConnell style after makes. Um, Chris Duarte, Kiefer, they were all extending ball pressure and really making it tougher for Rondo to get into stuff early and, and for the rest of the Cleveland's guards without Darius Garland to be um, pushing the ball up the floor and getting into stuff. I thought their rotations were pretty decent for the most part. I mean, they gave up some offensive rebounds clearly, but I liked that they were playing way off of Jared Allen and back in a drop. For the most part, some of the switching I thought that they had cleaned up. I mean, I did not like the switch that Goga had against Seti that left Dwayne Washington under the basket with Jared Allen. Um, I don't need that type of stuff, but I think that was just an improv because he got caught. But, um, and I think that a lot of that was kind of the problem when they got to the end of the third quarter and the fourth quarter, I don't think it was so much their defense. That was the issue. I think it was their offense because, you know, they played the three, two on and off during that stretch. And like I said, they weren't, they weren't really getting into anything because they want to run that X play. And it worked a couple of times with Lance in the first half where essentially like you'll see Rick Carl. Rick call it from the sidelines. He makes an X and that's generally their go-to against two, three where the two guys come in and, and set double ball screen screening the inside. And then Lance will just dribble down through. I absolutely love that play. Yeah. Is, I mean, lots of teams play. run it at this point, but it's a little bit tougher to do against the three, two, because you're not, it's not just two players. So you have to really get the angles right off to the side. And then it's going to be a smaller gap to drive through. I thought Justin did a good job screening it in there, but there's one time at the fourth where Lance could have dribbled into it and he didn't, he kind of just reversed the ball, but um, they had that turnover that I talked about on the inbound play where Kiefer didn't see O'Shea. Sabonis had one Dwayne Washington had the one I talked about where he didn't, his pocket placement was bad. And then Sabonis ended up falling down. And then also just like they got decent shots, getting the ball into the middle of the three, two, they just weren't knocking them down. So because all that stuff was happening offensively, it was leading to the transition runouts the other way. And they couldn't set their ball pressure anymore. Like you, you needed Cleveland to be taking the ball out of the net so that you could be 
getting back into the full court pressure and they were just losing guys. I mean, the one time it felt like Tory kind of got bumped and then lost like his footing and fell down. And that was the one where Kevin Love had the behind the back pass to I was amazing. Oh to SETI in the corner. But like they were totally there was nothing the Pacers could do about that because it was five on four. There's no way Sabonis was going to leave Evan Mobley wide open under the basket. And a similar thing happened when Ron they stared Rondo down to hit the three. Like you just have to live with that one because you're not going to leave Jared Allen wide open on a potential offensive rebound to heart to close out on Rondo. But um I think some of their defense, like some of the defense in the fourth quarter was head scratching because like, I don't really think you need to send a bunch of nail help to Rajon Rondo coming off a pick and squeeze in to the point where you're then leaving Kevin Love or Seti Osmond at the slot wide open. Like that stuff, I felt like they needed to relax a bit and stay home whenever the Cavs had heated up to the degree that they were. But I guess my main overall point was they got outscored by 20 points in the fourth quarter. I felt like the offense was much more the issue. And I thought that for the most part, their defense was a lot better than what we've been seeing of late. Yeah, no, I entirely agree. Like you mentioned, it's a lot of it felt like the transition makes um, uh, just because of the runouts and missing baskets. Um, and yeah, that was, that was killer. That oh God, that Kevin love behind the back pass. Like, like we were, we mentioned this before we got on the pod. The vibes of that Cavs team are just amazing. Like they're so fun to watch. Like once they got it going in the fourth, I was uh I was just I just kind of set my notebook down. I was like, well, this is I'm just gonna watch this. This is fun. Like I this is basketball to me. And I know it's not a, you know, the good the good guys are not, not really good guys to me. They're just there's players. But like seeing the Pacers get downtrodden like that, not not the most fun. But I mean, the Cavs certainly had fun doing it. So. Well, just Kevin Love's mentality alone. Like, oh, I, yeah. I was pretty sure after the one make that he was ready to, like, go cut down the nets. Yeah. Like, you would have thought that they had won the national championship. But, but, I mean, just imagining him a few years ago when he was getting frustrated, you know, with Colin Sexton dribbling the ball out of the air or the air out of the ball. And to to see him celebrating the successes of his teammates and really being part of all that, like, definitely a special team to watch this year. I, I, I enjoyed that fourth quarter as painful as it was to watch the Pacers do what they do in fourth quarters. But um, did you have any thoughts about Chris Duarte? Um, one thing that I've noted a lot recently, maybe I just haven't, you know, maybe I've just been noticing it more now, but I feel like he's been really active, um, helping into the paint. Uh, like I, he's, he's tipped a lot more balls. He's really been very active trying to protect the rim weak side. And he's, I mean, he's, he's blocked more shots recently. I have to, I'm going to check the stats really quick, but does that pop for you at all? Cause I feel like that has popped for me over the last week. Yeah. I mean, he had, he wasn't one of the rookies that really shined in Ijax's career night in terms of scoring, but I wrote that when he got selected to the, um, all rookie team in the little newser that like he had the key block down the stretch in that game and another key defensive possession that kind of, you know, fell between the cracks because of how well um, Ijax and Terry Taylor had shown up as well as Dwayne hitting all those fourth quarter threes. Um, His off ball sense is just really good. He just has a really good feel for not only reading passing lanes and reading the eyes of guys, but yeah, providing emergency help rotations. I think he's been pretty good at lately. I I mean, I think he had a block against Jared Allen, didn't he? Yeah. I think it was Jared. And that, that was really impressive. Um, I thought that the isolation three that he had once again, stepping back to his left against Evan Mobley out on the perimeter. Um, that was definitely pretty. He did a lot more stuff off the dribble getting into the paint. And I think, I mean, like we said earlier, I think more of those opportunities are going to come because Karras isn't out there, especially if they don't have, um, 
Malcolm Brogdon and TJ McConnell, but I thought it was one of his better games, probably maybe his best all around game since they got back from that road trip. He had had some kind of up and down scoring performances and had been struggling. The one thing that I want him to do is he needs to develop a, a, a better jump stop. I feel sometimes when he gets into the lane, like when he had that charge call, if he, if he jump stopped and got there, there'd be a lot of opportunities for him to scan the floor and, and see other opportunities. And he ended up, um, barreling over whoever it was that stood in front of him and the guy was there set for quite a bit i feel like that's shown up a couple times but that's a small quibble yeah no i agree um i'm just like you mentioned i'm really interested to see um what this looks like for him with higher usage because um well well he did have a really good game last night i am like he it's just felt like a lot of things have been very tough for him recently especially since malcolm's been out so um i am interested to see how that looks because like as awesome as he has been at hitting the uh, like the the shoulder fade um, recently, like that's just a really tough mode of offense to thrive on. So I'm interested to see how that starts to play out for him too. Something else we didn't talk about back in the Karis trade is that the Pacers are going to be one of only a few teams with cap space now. Do you I care? Think it's- <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mildly there's, there's do talk about with it, but yeah, I mean, I mildly do. Cause I mean, I think it's going to be Detroit, Orlando, San Antonio, and the Pacers. They're going to have roughly $21 million in cap space. I mean, that's another opportunity that they have where depending upon which direction they want to go, they could take back contracts and get more draft compensation or who knows, maybe, you know, make a contract offer to Jalen Brunson. Do you know that that's the first thing that popped into my head? I think Bobby Marks had the number. That is a like, good thing. Okay. People will, will, will like scoff at that. That would be awesome for the Pacers if they could get Jalen Brunson. I, mean, I would love that. I almost replied because somebody like mildly snarky was like, well, who does fit the Rick Carlisle system? And I almost replied, said, um, Jalen Brunson. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, no, he does. He nice. And I know, I mean, I know that the, the coaches that traveled with uh, Rick Carlisle, the assistant coaches, Mike Weiner and Jenny Busick, both really like um, Jalen Brunson. I, obviously, Rick Carlisle does. He was singing his praises when he went back to to Dallas last week for that homecoming game. And and when I heard one of my favorite podcasts I've listened to that Jenny Busick did uh, about a year ago, talking about the Mavericks offense and running Spain and Luca being a pick and roll savant, um, talked about how much of a winner Jalen Brunson was and how good he is to have on, on the team. So I mean, I, I will say that when Bobby Marks tweeted how much cap space they had, and I believe it's been reported that Jalen Brunson wants four years, 80, I was like, Oh, just enough money to sign Jalen Brunson. <laughs> yeah. Um, wait, quick, quick shout though. Uh, is that the basketball immersion pod or like the uh, basketball podcast with Chris Oliver? Yeah. Oh, I love that podcast. Um, Noel Quinn was just on it. Seattle Storm's head coach. That was a really good pod. Um, strong recommend to anybody who wants to learn more about X's and O's and just like kind of the ins and outs of the game. Um, I guess just in terms of the cap space, it is interesting too, because I, I was thinking about this earlier. I know we try not to do too much of the fake trade stuff, but one thing I've thought about a lot recently, because I've been watching more of the Bucks as I try and nail down where I'm at with them, because they've gone on a little bit of a rough spell recently. Um it seems less and less likely that Brooke Lopez is going to be back in time. Uh, like nothing is really coming out with that. It's uh, kind of like where Draymond is at, but worse. Um, and then again, you bring up the question too, like, okay, well, if he's like back after the all-star break, after back surgery, you're expecting expecting him to, to you know, just come back and be a near all defense guy who contributes offensively. So one of the things I thought about 
where if if this was the proposed trade, where are you at with this? If it's Brooke Lopez, Dante DiVincenzo, and like a second round pick or something for Miles. Oh man. I don't know how I would feel about that. I mean, yeah. I guess I would need to know what the plan is for Sabonis. I mean, yes. I, I like, I mean, obviously we know what Brooke Lopez can do taking up space in the paint and, and that type of defensive system where the Bucks keep everything away from the rim. Um, and what he does as a floor spacer. I mean, I think I use that word tentatively. It's more about positioning and where they put him yeah. necessarily than, than spacing the floor. But I think that Dante DiVincenzo has shown he can be a valuable defender and a valuable role player. I think he's had somewhat of a bumpy season. I think if I were the Pacers, that wouldn't be very high on my list. I think that I would, I would more be looking, I know we've brought this up in the past and I don't know where Minnesota is on things, but like, I think I, if it was that up against the deal, like Jaden McDaniels, Beasley and a first, like, I, I don't think I would think very long about which one of those two I was taking. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and that, that's not like that's not something I think that the Pacers should take. But I do think we're starting to get more towards like that. I, I'd seen that floated somewhere. I'd have to go back and look. But um, it is getting you, a little bit. Oh, did sorry. you know what? Sorry, but did you know what my next thought was? Because we didn't talk about we probably could have the what? other trade that happened in this past week. Um, Portland moving Norm Powell and Robert Covington to the Clippers and getting back that Keon Johnson, wild. Eric Bledsoe, and Justice Winslow. And like I think in part we all know that that was done so that they could um, duck the luxury tax, and they must really like Keon Johnson, I guess. But um, if you compare that with what the Pacers got for Levert, it's almost like the Pacers got more. But I will say like Norman Powell's contract's a lot longer and is is worth more money, so that probably played a part in them not getting quite the same amount as the Pacers got from the the Cavs. And it also just depends on what people value. I mean, I tend to think that sometimes we like to react to like, Oh, that GM only accepted that. Well, like I kind of doubt that Portland didn't make any other calls. That probably is what they thought. He probably had a directive from ownership that, Hey, we must get under the luxury tax. And I also think that I doubt that they're done. So my other thought was that Eric Bledsoe makes $18 million. And he hasn't missed a game all year, I don't think. And he was, as soon as he was traded there, I think Chauncey Billups said that he sat out with like Achilles tendinopathy or something. But I think that there was some thought from the Portland media that that was somewhat shenanigans. So I just wondered if there was, would be anything still in play with the Blazers where you could get another contract that I think is only guaranteed for like 3.9 next year that you could shed. Um, that did pop into my head because I, I just, I don't think that's all the Blazers are going to do. Oh yeah. That was my first thought too. When that happened, I was like, yeah, it's easy to pan this right now, but I feel like this is just opening up more for them to try and maneuver and, and be flexible. Um, and it opens up playing time for some of the younger guys. Like I still like, I mean, in terms of just actual value, I think on, on paper looks really bad for Portland, but I mean, okay, they want to see Trenton Watford play more, and he's been actually kind of interesting. They want to see some of their younger players play more, and they want to tank, frankly. Like, they are not good right now. They, they're they very much in the same position as, as Indiana. So um, are you trying to reference that maybe Eric Bledsoe is getting traded to the Pacers for Miles Turner? I'm just saying that it. Was, I just found it interesting that with uh-huh. how much talk there's been about how interested the Blazers were in Miles, and I know that it seemed like there's been somewhat of a recommitment to Joseph Nurkic, or Yusuf Nurkic, my bad. I don't know why I just totally used the wrong name. But um, I just, 
they would have to move other pieces to still acquire draft picks, which it seems like they want to do, but I just wouldn't completely rule it out. Yeah, I don't know. No, you're right. Um, I will say though, Jesus, if it was just like, I mean, they would have to send a lot more back with Eric Bledsoe. Well, yes, yes, yeah. That's you're not just gonna take. Oh no, yeah, for sure. I wasn't. I didn't think that you meant that, but like, I mean, just looking at the roster right now, I'm like, "Eh, uh, I don't know. Um, Interesting. Like CJ Ellaby doesn't really uh, move much for me. Um, I don't know. No, my guess is it would have to be from whatever else they move from CJ McCollum that they'd have to get stuff back. I had had people reference that they thought it was possible that Portland was going to try to acquire other draft capital, but we shall see what they do. I also saw something else that raised my antenna was that uh, the heat apparently are interested in Rui, which really, Oh yeah. yeah, I did see that. Now I think. About yeah. It. I think that they, that there was said that they were interested in Rui and PJ Washington and I forget who the other player was. So that made me wonder if you could potentially rope in a third team there with, with, because Quentin Mayo, who is on Substack and covers the wizards said that the wizards made another offer for Sabonis or what their final offer is going to be. You and I already covered that on the last podcast in terms of just Rui and, and Denny, but um, I hadn't really considered the possibility of getting another team in there. I don't know what Miami's draft pick situation is, if it's any better than what um, Washington's is, but I did notice that. Somebody just free Daniel Gafford. I know he can't be traded, but that that guy deserves to play more. I'm so sick of like, uh, I think it was Josh Robinson reporting that thing that they were playing Thomas Bryant and Montrose Harrell more so that they could showcase them for trade. But I'm just like, Daniel Gafford's good, dude. I just want to see him play. I don't but, really understand the Wizards' direction as a whole. So. Uh, yeah, me either. Build around Beal is uh, – no, um, out on that. But, yeah, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we, we need to dive into on this. I don't think that there's been any other trade uh, scuttle. I mean, there really wasn't even trade scuttle, the things we brought up. It was just me noticing <laughs> things happening out on uh, out on the internet. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's so much that's interesting and up in the air to me. Like Dallas is one game back from surpassing Utah, which I think has kind of been lost in the in the sauce a little bit um, in the last week or so. Like, I think people have finally caught on that Dallas been playing better. But I mean, even Denver is they're 29 and 24 now after a couple of really, uh, really good. Perf- I mean, Nicole Jokic has just been insane this year. Um I think if I remember correctly, it's like the last two weeks of basketball from him. He was scoring like 30 points per game on 73% true shooting, which is just like, how do you do that? But um, there's just a lot up in the air. Um, I I don't really know what to make of, I mean, as much as we don't enjoy the trade deadline, like I think you like we enjoy just like, I just hate the fake conjecture and stuff. That's where where it is for me. I enjoy seeing how teams are built and and how the directions go. I just don't love like a lot of the talks about value and everything that gets really annoying and frustrating. But um, I, I mean, don't like any of it, and I resent that we've had to be boxed into talking about it to this degree. Like we don't really have a choice. I mean, yeah, um, this is what the state of the Pacers is right now. They've probably been the most prominent team, if we're being honest, in terms of just total number of mentions with players being out on the market. Cause I mean, it even extends, it's still possible that something happens with some of their more fringe role players like Tori and Justin as well this week. Like, I mean, that's kind of quieted down, but I wouldn't completely rule it out that it, it could be a possibility. So yeah. um, we've had to talk about it. It's just the, this and free agency, like I would just prefer like, and I know that there's reason from teams, players, wherever, why the reports come out and when they come out, 
just for my own selfishness, I would be perfectly fine. Just like yesterday, if it's like, okay, I just react to the fact that Karis did get traded. And if a player comes back, I'll, you know, write and analyze how that player is going to fit the Pacers and move on from there rather than like what for the Pacers ever since that report came out against the athletic has just been months of speculation. And it just seems like it takes away from the actual games where we don't really get to talk about what's going out on the court because it has been hard. Like if we're being honest to do the, even just to do these podcasts, like when you don't know what, and I hate to use this word, but when you don't know what the motives for some of the rotation are or why shots are being distributed in certain ways, maybe, or, you know, where people's heads are at in terms of who's going to move, who's going to stay. It makes it a lot harder to talk about the games. And I just wish that the NBA as a whole could be more about the actual basketball. But that's just me. And that doesn't mean that has to be what everybody likes. Like, I accept that. Um, there's people who are very good at coming up with fake trades and writing columns about that and are very good about covering the salary cap far better than I would ever be. And if if that's what certain fans like, then, you know, I understand it. I just wish that sometimes it could be more focused on the here and now rather than, you know, looking down the road at somebody who might be a free agent and might want to play for the Knicks and, you know, two years from now and, you know, stuff like that. But that's just my personal preference. No, we're in the same boat with that. One last thing that I did want to hit on because I just remember that this report had surfaced. Um, it is looking a little bit more likely that Charlotte is going to move on from PJ Washington. They're four straight losses. Um, they're two and six in their last eight games and their defense has really fallen apart after kind of picking up for a short amount of time. Uh, but that just definitely something to keep our eye on as well. Um, and, I, yeah, and, and ask, Book Knight and Borrego kind of had a yeah, stat on the sideline as well. I have to tell you well. about that after, after the pod, but yeah, there's a, yeah, it's, the vibes have, have definitely changed a little bit in Charlotte and it seems like things are going to change up there as well. Yeah. I mean, it feels like the one rumor that's out there that we'll probably, we'll see if it actually ever comes into fruition. That's been out there for like a million years is Charlotte being interested in miles Turner and whether PJ Washington or whoever it would be, would come back to the Pacers. I feel like that's like the one that never goes away. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. It's the, the one thing that will never die is Marlon is God, God, can I even speak? Miles Turner to the Charlotte Hornets. That's what I meant to say. Wow. Uh, my mouth is just all over the place today. But, Caitlin, unless you have anything else you want to close out on, I think that is a good place to leave it. No, I think we're good. Cool. Well, Caitlin, thank you, as always, for your time. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please be sure to go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We want to hear from you and get your feedback. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day. And thank you for listening.